You know, I think in terms of Vital Voices, what we do is we really search the world for women who have a daring vision, women who are really stepping up to tackle the world's greatest challenges, whether it be uh, the climate crisis or combating violence against women, racial injustices. And what we do is we come up underneath them, basically, and support them to take that vision to scale, to replicate it in other countries or regions in their own country. Every business, whether or not they realize it, is an idea business. The people at Gray have a long history of creating famously effective ideas. And so, with Gray Matter, we explore the ideas shaping our world. We ask creative minds from all corners of life how they came up with their best ideas. And that's what matters for Gray Matter. On this special episode of Gray Matter, we'll discuss the power of leadership, who benefits from it, and what it takes to lead differently. Hi, I'm John Petrolis, Worldwide Chief Creative Officer at Gray. This week's idea is the nonprofit, non-governmental organization, the Vital Voices Global Partnership. Vital Voices is based in Washington, D.C., and works with women leaders to empower them in economics, political participation, and human rights. We are speaking with the co-founder, president, and CEO, Elise Nelson. Elise chatted with Gray New York's Chief Creative Officer, Justine Armour, to discuss the ways women lead, what they learn from women leaders around the world, and how they see the future of work in a post-pandemic world. Elise has worked for Vital Voices for over 20 years, serving as Vice President and Senior Director of Programs before she took on her current role in 2009. Since then, Vital Voices has increased its reach to serve over 18,000 women leaders across 182 countries. Elise served in the State Department in the White House with Vital Voices before it was its own entity. She's received many honors as an influential person in publications like Newsweek Magazine, Fortune Magazine, and Apolitical. Earlier this year, Gray and Vital Voices produced a video for International Women's Day featuring Amanda Gorman. Now, this conversation is different than any we've had before. It's very much a two-way interview with Elise asking Justine questions as well. This conversation will also be featured on the Vital Voices podcast. Here are Elise Nelson and Justine Armour. And for us, we work very much, quite frankly, behind the scenes, right, to raise their voices. We provide them with training, a network of their peers, visibility and credibility for their work, help to tell their stories. We also provide grants. But I think what makes us different is that we don't go into countries and say, here are the problems we see as an American woman, you know, or, or our, our staff is completely international, but going into countries, we don't say, here are the problems, these are the solutions from the outside. What we know is you can only truly change what you know. Women tend to be the closest to the community, the closest to the challenges. They see it, they experience it, and that enables them to step up and want to make change. But what happens is that they don't recognize that as leadership because they see a different form of leadership in their countries and communities. You know, they see people who were born into it, who are elected into it. And I think what really sets us apart is that we say, no, you are a leader. And actually, you have the solution, and we're going to support you on that journey. And we also understand this is not a one-off support system. This is a lifelong commitment to you and your vision for leadership. Because our approach is so bespoke, so much about that individual leader and her path, her vision, that sparks incredible loyalty. And so, you know, if you think about it, in so many ways, Vital Voices was founded for and because of these extraordinary leaders whose voices weren't being heard, but needed to, to tackle these challenges. 
But now what has become is a network of 18,000 women across 182 countries that are impacting and supporting each other. So it is not about us to them. It's about us to each other, right? Um, and I have seen that. I have to tell you what has been so inspiring about um, this past year. I mean, in all the darkness, the light for me has been these women who've lost so much, whether it be, you know, in the explosion in Beirut or, you know, it be in Burma as, you know, the military comes in. But what has been so amazing is how these women have had resilience, how they've risen up even disproportionately impacted by crisis to serve and support their community in new and innovative ways. And it's been incredibly inspiring. And, you know, I think the, the, as I say, this organization was founded for and because of these leaders. It started as a U.S. government initiative on the heels of the United Nations Fourth World Conference on Women that took place 26 years ago. I attended that conference as a 21-year-old college student, desperate to find my place in the world, pre-Google, right? You could not Google international women's rights. You had to go there to this gathering of 55,000 women, you know, which crazy even that I found out about it, saved and borrowed, you know, bought the cheapest ticket I could find. But I and others, along with, you know, Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright, Milan Revere, Teresa Lohr, the group of, of co-founders, uh, Donna McClarty, were there at that gathering and really saw that there were these voices, these bright lights that were not being heard. Mm -hmm. um, and if we truly wanted to tap our full potential as humans, we would need to tap them, right? We would, we would really need to, I hate to say unleash that potential, um, but I think it's to support, to nurture, um, and to remind them that they are indeed the ones they've been waiting for, we've all been waiting for. There is no one else. They are the ones that are going to make that positive change in the world. Yeah. When women gather, it's it can be a very inspiring moment and it can create a lot of energy around, around the issues. Is that where you got the sort of the first spark, the idea for Vital Voices? And I imagine it was, I can just imagine, I mean, I, just the way that you told the story to me and, and I, I imagine there's been a lot of support that just... It, of people who have been inspired by your story, you know, who are, who have been the other supporters around it um, that you've, that you've leaned on and what have they, what have they done for you? So certainly, I mean, for me going to the UN Fourth World Conference on Women, honestly, when I heard uh, then First Lady Hillary Clinton speak and she gave that very famous speech where she said, women's rights are human rights, human rights are women's rights. And today that might seem a little like, aha, yeah, you know, but back then, 26 years ago, that was like, wait, what? Yeah. And if you look around the world, you know, particularly the place in which this conference was happening, there were, you know, millions of baby girls missing from the society, right? Simply because they were female. There was, you know, and still is, you know, honor crimes and violence against women. And there's no country in the world that we can say that women have the same rights, opportunities, access, and power that men do. Um, and the thing is, I think women, when they get that power, they wield it differently. You know, it was for me that spark of seeing her speak and recognizing here's a woman who doesn't necessarily have uh, the, you know, political title where she's supposed to go into China and give this speech. In fact, a lot of people didn't want her to because it was like a policy speech, but she's not a policy leader in China. 
Um, but she knew that if she raised these voices to the world stage, that the world would pay attention. That, you know, pre-social media era, her words would spread like wildfire because they would be so powerful. And that we needed that spokesperson to get this message out beyond the 55,000 women gathered at this, at this uh, conference. And for me, you know, that was, you know, as a, as a 21-year-old, you know, struggling to find her place in increasingly a global world, as we would hear people say, um, I thought, okay, you know, I too have a voice. And okay, it's not as powerful. It's not as, you know, privileged and, you know, high level as someone like Hillary Clinton, but I can use that voice too. And that led me to start a, a uh, conference at my university, which I invited a number of people from the White House. They said, oh, you got to come work for us. I started as a White House intern. I then was able to get a job and then a job in the State Department. And that is where Vital Voices was birthed, was within the U.S. State Department. And what happened was it was supposed to be a one-off conference. A very maverick ambassador, uh, Swanee Hunt, who was the U.S. ambassador to uh, Austria, and she wanted to pull together women from the former Soviet Union. The wall had just come down, but women were not part of this democracy. They were sort of like the animals still in the cages, right? They, they were not coming out. They were not raising their voices. And she knew, you know, women had to be part of this new societies, these new governments, these new, you know, businesses that, were, that would be emerging in the former Soviet Union, Central and Eastern Europe. And so she wanted to bring women leaders together. And that conference was so successful and so powerful. And obviously with the backing of her and then U.S. Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright, the first female Secretary of State, as well as pulling you know, leaders from across Europe, from across the United States to gather, um, as well as emerging leaders you know, throughout Central and Eastern Europe, working with our U.S. embassies to identify them, and having that system, that sort of you know safe cocoon or umbrella of all of these high-level women and men using their power and authority to sort of sh shine a spotlight and sort of credentialize these women and say, no, this is the next leader, that gave them something. And then that spread, right? And my little office in the State Department started getting calls from women in Haiti and women in Nigeria and Northern Ireland and Vital Voices became a movement. And we started having conferences sponsored by the U.S. government and other governments around the world. And, you know, a conference today, well, who cares? But, you know, pre-social media, pre, you know, everybody in the world being online and connected, you needed to have these high-level gathering opportunities to really credentialize women um, and, and really bring them together and so that they would know that, you know, this young woman in Russia who had discovered, stumbled onto the issue of, of uh, domestic violence before it even had a name, long before there was a law in any country. You know? And here she was finding that women around the world were facing the same issue. Wait, this is something. We need to take this to the world stage. So there's so much power there in connection, right? We take it for granted today, obviously. And so what happened was these women who would come to these conferences, you know, and now we're sort of three years into the initiative. It started in 1997. It's now the year 2000. The Clinton administration is coming to an end. And the leaders that we had touched who had gone back and started Vital Voices chapters who wanted to sort of spread the seeds of this idea of women as critical to building 
strong communities and countries. I mean, we would say no country can move forward if half the population, women and girls, are left behind. I remember when both Hillary Clinton and Madeleine Albright said that in a speech. But we had no data back then. Nothing that said that that was true. Today is completely different. We have data, statistics that show us no country can move forward with half the population. They can't expect to compete in the global marketplace if they don't educate their girls and you know help them grow businesses. And so we decided to basically spin off into a nonprofit. And I was the first employee um, of the you know founder and first employee or co-founder and first employee of the of the nonprofit. How you think of Vital Voices today as the global partnership? There are a number of co-founders, so I I want to just make that clear because I always think things in partnership are always better. But I will say all along, I think the secret to our success has been those women with power with influence hearing about what we do, meeting the women leaders we support and saying, I want to be part of this. And it's like you, Justine, it's like you heard about our work, you know, and watching your face on that, on those first, you know, Zoom calls that we had in the midst of the pandemic, you were like, yes, I want to be part of this. I want to give my time. I want to lend my voice, my talents. And I think, you know, that, that, as I say, I mean, that is the secret sauce, right? Um, is that, you know, women who have broken through want to use their voices to help others do the same. And unfortunately, there is that stupid, you know, stereotype that women pull the ladder up after them. And I have to tell you, my entire career, you know, getting up on 30 years now, my entire career has been working with, for, supporting, you know, nurturing, mentoring women. And that's just not true. I I completely agree. I it is a stereotype and it's unfortunate and I definitely haven't seen it in my business. I wanted to, uh, you know, while we're talking about Vital Voices, obviously a ton of support, but the existence of it is, you know, inspiringly, positively railing against something. And so you would have a lot of critics and a lot of forces against you. So tell me some of some of that. Like what have you had to overcome in terms of your the forces against the organization and you? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the hardest things for the organization was making that transition from being a U.S. government initiative to a tiny little nonprofit with no budget and trying to build a board and get offices set up and build something, right? I mean, we were used to having the support of the first lady of the United States who had a tremendous amount of power and the you know sec- first woman secretary of state we, our office was under the Secretary of State's office, right? So we reported directly into her, or my boss at the time reported directly into her. So we had a lot of power, right? Ma- uh, Milan Revere, um, another one of the phenomenal founders, was chief of staff to Hillary Clinton. Uh, so we had this great sort of, you know, ultimate network internally and externally. We then become a nonprofit and all of a sudden, okay, now we got to start from square one and building something. So that was certainly a challenge and really to build up a reputation that we weren't just a sort of, you know, U.S. government initiative. We are a bipartisan or nonpartisan. That was very important right from the beginning. Um, We came out of one U.S. government, you know, uh, uh, administration, but we were like, everybody should care about this. It's harder. It's harder in these days because, you know, parties, there are further extremes, right? But 
we do try to be about policy and what policies are good for women and no matter who's promoting that. Right. Um, but I think, you know, I think that that has been a challenge, but also, you know, so often, you know, in communities, the, the, the greatest thing holding women back is not a law on the books. It's whether or not that law actually gets implemented. People take it seriously. They believe in it. They're willing to stand up and fight for it. Right. And the problem is, is that so often, um, you know, in these communities, people want to see change really fast in our 24, you know, seven day a week news cycle, you know, like everybody, you know, wants to see that quick change and really change takes time. It really does. And it's, and it is about the long term, and we make those long term investments, but it's also knowing when you need to step back, right? And you really need to let that woman lead and decide. And, you know, you may not agree with every step that she's taking, but you need to understand that she knows those social, political, behavioral surrounds, right? Um, in her community. And it's really in having that trust in her. So often I get a question of, well, how do you, you know, an American, you know, white woman go into a country and, you know, in Africa and say they need to do this, that, and other. And I said, well, I don't do that. In fact, that I believe very strongly in not doing that. We find the leaders who are solving the issues and we trust in them and invest in them and believe that they have the answers. And in my opinion, that's what's been wrong with development for all these years is that somehow we think we know better because we've got more education, but culture trumps everything. You know, I mean, culture is king always in organizations as we have certainly seen in this past year and, and, and now, you know, but also in, in communities and, and, and countries. Just the, the transition from going from a a government organization to being to going to a global nonpartisan group must have been you know it's like a lot of navigating and like you say it's like it takes time and you're t- repeating your vision over and over again and, for, and finding I'm, I'm sure you became very good about talk, at talking about your story in a very empathetic ways to lots of different stakeholders over the over the years. I've really benefited by having so many phenomenal women mentors and not just those that I've worked for or with on our board. We have an incredibly impressive board, but also, you know, women leaders around the world. And I so often, Justine, get asked, when are you going to do something else? You know, like, you know, even by like some of my closest friends, like, you've been doing this vital voices thing a long time, you know, what are they, you know, what are you going to do next? I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, I am not, we are not there yet. Like I have a vision. There is this, um, there is a, a term, a name, IntelliKey. And IntelliKey is, I don't know if you've heard of this before, but IntelliKey is your ultimate potential realized. And I feel like I know what the IntelliKey of Vital Voices is. And we're not there yet. And until we get there, I won't be satisfied. This is not a job for me. This is not a career. This is a, it is a, it is honestly a higher calling. And it was going to Beijing, recognizing, okay, you need to be part of this. And then finding the path to do that. And, um, you know, every day I'm, I'm curious, I'm passionate, I'm, I'm challenged, you know, um, 
recently we decided to purchase a building, a historic building, and create the first ever global embassy for women. And you know, people are like, oh my gosh, you know, why did you, you know, and certainly we didn't decide to do this in the pandemic. No. We decided to do this years ago, because obviously you got to have a capital campaign and everybody said, you can't do it, you can't do it. Uh, my parents could have told them, well, yeah, don't, don't say that. First, <laughs> we'll just become more motivated. Yeah. But, um, but we've, you know, we've, we've almost raised our entire campaign. It's, we are set to open in March, 2022. And, you know, it's going to happen. We are going to create a place in the world where women tackling the world's greatest challenges can come together and, and, and work together to, to, to come to solutions. And I think for me, it was not just about, oh, we need space and we need offices for our team, although increasingly not so much, right? But mm-hmm. I think people, you know, want to be more flexible now with work. But people want places to come together and connect. I think now more than ever, people want that. And um, they want to feel like they're part of meaningful things. And some of that, yes, can be experienced online, but not all of it. And so that is important. Um, But I think also it's time for women to take up space, right? Mm -hmm. Our voices, I think, are finally being heard. People are finally recognizing that women lead differently and that difference is needed, you know, Seeing this past year, the the Prime Minister of uh, of New Zealand, Jacinda Ardern, you couldn't watch that and say, "Oh, you know, she isn't doing a fabulous job." But also the fact that she did it in such a different way and in such a way that I think shows people, gave people a window into the way that women lead with this different kind of using power. And it's not like she was soft, and it's not like she was not you know, decisive. She was decisive. She was tough. She was clear, but she was collaborative, empathetic. She was, you know, she went in listening rather than talking. Um, and I think that's what, you know, what the world saw this year. And I think as, as people recognize that we need to take up space, we need to have more of those places that puts that leadership on display, not, you know, once a year, twice a year, but every day of the year. Yes. I love that we, we, you know, I remember talking to you a year ago about what excited me always, uh, you know, from the beginning about this, our conversations about Butter Voices is just how much there's still to unlock in women's leadership and how the world is going to really benefit from that in the future. That is totally what keeps me going. It's the daily inspiration of the women I get to work with. But it's also the, the, the knowing that like we have tapped like this much there is like, you know, if we think about we have invested and supported 18,000 lights around the globe. And if I imagine those lights all around the globe and then I think, what if it was 18 million, you know, I mean, you know, and growing and growing and growing, you know, and you just you imagine everything getting filled in and then the whole planet is bright. I mean, we didn't start off working in the United States. Yeah. At, at one point, I'm just like, we need to be working in the United States. There are major challenges here. We support the bright lights, you know, let yeah. Let's support the bright lights across this country. And it has been so rewarding to see and be part of. Um, I want to I ask you, because I, I often think of this, even from those early conversations, I feel like you so quickly got vital voices. You understood us, which, I mean, let me tell you, it takes people a long time to understand <laughs> us because we are so like bespoke and, 
you know, we're trying to really serve each individual woman, even though there are many that we are serving. Um, and you immediately could bring that creative spark. How, how do you do that? You know, how do you keep your creativity fresh? And because it is the thing that is going to power this next. Yeah. You know, this next yeah I, I think that, you know, for a long time, I, you know, I'm a creative in advertising. And for, from probably the first 13, 14 years of my career, I was in, I was learning how to be, a, learning how to do this job like a man would do it. Most of the people in, in my part of the business are men. In fact, I went to a conference back to, you know, we're talking about when women gather. I went to a women's conference in advertising called the 3% conference where, mm. you know, based on this idea that only 3% of creative directors making advertising were women. At some point, it became very important to be a woman in advertising. And, and that was a moment where it really unlocked my ability to bring more personal stories to the work. I went from learning the ways of, you know, being a student of how it always had been done to being an, having an understanding that actually what I was bringing to the table had massive value. So then I started doing work that was coming from a very personal place, very, um, you know, from my personal experiences, from my personal insights and did work about for a secret brand, a brand called Secret called Stress Tested for Women, which is based on the sort of stressful experiences of young women. I did some work, you know, about about mom shaming for Yo Play. I did some work for like lots of work for PNG about equality. And, you know, I think that in previous, you know, in the first half of my career, I was all like absorbing films and art and music and trying to make my creativity come out of these collisions of these references. And then I think that what's really unlocked me in the most in the last 10 years has been really understanding that what's in here, inside me, I'm pointing to my gut and chest and everything, is, has massive value. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Can I tell you, that is like the first almost like concept of leadership that we try and convince all the women that we work with around the world. Like, don't look out there. Your driving force, your reason for being, your mission is in you. It is built on your experiences your talents, what you're passionate about, follow that. Do not look out there because people want leaders who know what they are about and who stand up for it. And so you yeah. better damn be sure before you go out and try and lead others, right? You know, yes. it's so true. It's so true. It's that authenticity that, that people are craving. And I see it now. It's, it's like as the higher you get, it's like the amplification of your influence is when I say hi, I mean like the, I'm quite senior in my company and in my industry now, and I can see what that's doing to unlock other young women, and it's like super gratifying. Unlocking it earlier, then you were able to kind of come to that realization. Wow, so cool. I actually, you know, to completely have been inspired by the women leaders around the world in this moment, and like you. Jacinda has been one of those figures for me that's been, has really given me a lot of confidence in just trusting my own leadership style. And um, because it's not, she's not behaving like the other sort of politicians around the world, world leaders. She is really elegantly and, 
you know, embracing, you know, she's a, she's unashamedly has a very empathetic, elegant style of leadership that is, as you say, listening to people, very much absorbing the concerns of her, her people, especially in the moment that we've all, the whole world has has just lived through and is many parts of the world are still living through where we have had no playbook for great leadership. Like it's been a very confusing time um, to run an organization, to be a parent, to be, to run any, almost any, be any kind of leader, but to see this woman and other women like her find a way that's really inspiring. I think it's almost been to me like the most important moment in my sort of journey as a leader and an incredibly confidence building, even though, you know, we're still in this fray <laughs> of pandemic. Yeah. And, yeah. And it will change organizations forever as we know, because I think organizations have to shift and it's a different power dynamic. And as I've talked to a lot of women executives um, some on our board and otherwise, um, they have they have said to me that men in big corporate jobs are desperate to get back, want everybody back in the office, and women are saying, "Well, let's see what let's see what our team wants because we did make this work. Let's see what works for people. Not everyone's ready to be vaccinated. Not everybody's ready to come back." I'm a pro-vax person, but but we can't always make decisions for people. We don't know their situations. And it's just interesting because I think that, and I'm not going, I don't want to make this blanket statement saying that all men are like this, but I do think that men want to get back because that is the leadership and power structure that they are used to, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that women are, thrive in, sort of a different kind of more fluid style of leadership and management. And I think the style that puts the people at the center. And here's the thing, that is what people want. I mean, you look at Generation Z, they are not going to work for organizations that do not care about them first as a person. Yes. You know, and then as an employee. And I think, you know, those those days are over. And what is, I think, hard for, you know, I'm a Gen Xer. I think what's hard for our generation is that when we came into the workforce, the workforce was set up as in, you know, the boss is there, you know, you work long hours and, you know, it's, it's you know, the, the sort of power to punish was there more mm-hmm. so than the power to reward. And the dynamics have completely shifted. And we need that new style of leadership that understands that, Power is, is about rewarding. Power is about relationships. It isn't about what it used to be. And there are studies that have, that have shown that to be absolutely true. It's you know, not just anecdotal. But I think yeah. the anecdotal pieces have been really interesting. Yes. And I think I feel as all of everything you just are saying totally resonates with me. And, you know, as we talk about returning to the office, because we're all still working remotely at the moment, you know, there are, I know there are some organizations that are making blanket rules about everyone has to be back by September and others are like, we're going to be back Tuesday to Thursday and then we can have Monday and Fridays flex days. Those don't, those, that doesn't make any sense to me because we're basically just softly moving back into the direction of 
how it was rather than like, let's really look at where it supports people and in the, and the work that they're doing to be together. And let's also let them make the decision for themselves about where they want to do their work individually and trust that it's going to be maybe messy at the beginning, but also trust that we can still have growth as an organization by leaning into the sort of the needs of our people individually. And it doesn't, it, it may, it's an unknowable path, right? Because you, you have to go like, you're either going to go like trying to return it back to how it was, or I'm going to like grow in this direction, a very modern, empathetic, sensitive direction um, and grow a company with its people. And it, it's, you know, I understand why there's tension around it, but hmm. to me, that's the opportunity that we're in. It is the opportunity. I heard a wonderful, um, I was I was talking to Mary Robinson, a former president of, of Ireland and first woman to serve in that role. And she was talking about how this generation, this Gen Z, doesn't want to build back better, but wants to reimagine. Like, you know, don't say, oh yeah, we're going to build back to where we were and oh, a little more. It's like, oh no, the whole structure needs to change. We're not going like this. We're going like this, you know. It's, it'll be very interesting to see the way that I think this generation moves us, this, how people respond or don't respond in this time. But I mean, I think all of us know that if you try to be stagnant in crisis, right, when things are moving so fast and changing so fast, you're just moving backwards. You, know, you can't, you know, you, you can't expect that the world changes and then it's going to go back. It's not. Um, the interesting thing also, just to go back to Jacinda Ardern, what I find really interesting about her, and I've spent some time with uh, Jenny Shipley, who was the first uh, woman who was elected prime minister uh, in New Zealand. And then, of course, there was Helen Clark, and she was the third, right? Uh, Jacinda was the third. And I think what is so powerful about that is that in many ways, you know, in talking to Jenny, she felt like she needed to lead like a man, right? That was the mold. That's what, you know. And she discovered over time she didn't really have to do that and she could create her own. Um, but she also didn't have children. And so it was a little, you know, a little bit different. She was in a different place in her life. Then comes Helen Clark, right? And it's a little bit different there, right? And she, you know, has a family. Uh, they're older, but still, right? And, you know, she can lead mm-hmm. slightly differently. But still the two are probably going to be compared as the only two women. Then it's that magic number of three, or they say 30% on a board. You know, the third, she creates her own rules. It's no longer, you know, a special thing that a woman is prime minister. It's a woman can be prime minister, a man can be prime minister. And so now you can create your own rules. And I think we've seen that in so many countries, whether it be Iceland, uh, Norway. I mean, they've had so many women leaders that now those that are in that position politically can create their own. Can write their yeah. own rules. What is the best advice that anyone's ever given you around leadership? Um, okay, I think the best advice, and I'm sorry because this is probably you know we hear this all the time, but I think not to fear failure because you know if if it, obviously if you're not failing, you're not taking enough of a risk. Um, 
But I think one of the greatest lessons I have learned in failure, and to me, this is like the test of leadership. When you fail, do you, do you get back up and do it again? And what I've learned about myself is that when I fail, I have learned to own that failure. And that's about being comfy as a leader. That's about having confidence as a leader and in your own leadership to know I'm not going to be you know, uh, defined by this. And I want to get back as soon as possible. I want to learn the lesson and get back as soon as possible and, mm-hmm. and prove to myself and to others that, that this is not me. That experience was not me. And just even, you know, with, with, our, with uh, the purchasing of this building, the first building we were on our way to purchase and had raised a good amount of money. I'd engaged donors and we'd been talking about it. Then we lost the building because yeah. the people who we were going to buy it from decided kind of really out of nowhere, not to sell it. And, you know, I had to, for one day, kind of, you know, sort of kind of let myself kind of mourn and grieve and be sad about this and be like, oh, this is awful. And then I said, okay, that day is over. Now get up and figure it out. And we ended up finding a much better building. And I think it's about that, like staying positive. And I, one thing I learned, not from my mother's words, but from her actions, which is, of course, more powerful, is the power of, of staying positive and not even putting mm-hmm. that negative, negativity out there. And um, I, I was on this wellness retreat with a number of women leaders from our network, and we, we actually had this sort of discussion with a, I don't know, I guess sort of a psychic and... Um, and I told her, I said, you know, tell me what's going to happen with this building. I'm, I'm, I'm so worried. This is all I can think about. It's consuming me. And she said, stop right there. Stop going out. Pull people in. Believe it's going to happen because it is. And she gave me this uh, bracelet. And I decided that once that bracelet fell off naturally, it was just like a string bracelet, mm-hmm. with an evil eye on it. Once that bracelet fell off, that... I didn't need it anymore, right? That I had convinced myself and thus I would be able to convince others that this was going to happen. Mm-hmm. But I think it's, you know, it's, 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 it's the risk, it's the failure, but more important even than the failure is learn fast, get up fast. You know, I mean, they say fail fast. I mean, you know, sure, fail fast, you know, if you want to. But, you know, you can also, you know, you can also have failures, you know, later on in the yeah. process, whenever you do it. <laughs> I think the most important thing is to like get back out there. And what I have noticed in when I, you know, in my study of leadership, because I work with so many leaders around the world, is that great leaders do that. They 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 are like, okay, that doesn't define me. They can move past it very quickly. And that is so important. Yeah. I mean, everybody fails. I was talking to somebody about, you know, people in sports. They make a decision not to even engage with the concept of failure or because it's just like it's a pointless headspace to get into. It's like you just got to move past it and keep going. Mm. One of the, this, is a, this is the best advice ever anyone's ever given me and it's maybe a bit negative <laughs> to your, <laughs> um, but somebody told me um, when I, before I became, when, when I was going into sort of, company sort of advertising agency leadership that nobody really knows what they're doing everyone's just making it up 
And it was like the most <laughs> freeing piece of advice everyone, anyone, had, you know, I could have received because it was like, and it just made me realize that, and actually in the last year, you know, it's like almost concerning because you know that all these people around you that are supposed to be leading you out of something are probably just making it up. I don't know a playbook, but it was incredibly, it was like a really empowering, freeing thing because it's like now I don't even have a concept of like really a, a failure because it's just like part of the journey of leadership. I'm definitely going to get it wrong some days just as everyone does but nobody really is born into this thing, knowing all the way, knowing how to do it. We're all just making it up every day. <laughs> so, and it's really helped me to think to, on, back on that in the last year. It's not like I've had, I haven't wanted to look to anyone else for the answers, you know. I think and women hearing something like that can be, very empowering and very sort of confidence building because it's not like you really don't need to look to other people for the answers. And, and I look at people like Jacinda Ardern and AOC and like even people like Oprah who are just like really going and Amanda Gorman, like gut instinct going with their, you know, their, just their humanity and their instinct and finding ways to inspire people and finding ways to succeed as leaders. Once women listen to their gut, right. Our instinct, things will really begin to change. Because I think what I found early in my path, I wasn't always the CEO of Vital Voices. I ran programs. I was always sort of like the young baby founder who was running around the world, working with women, going to the dangerous places. (laughs) And um, when I became CEO, all of a sudden I realized that you know, it it was almost like a very scary moment because I realized, one, all these people who work in this organization, them, their families, and their lives depend on me. But also, I have no buffer. There's no buffer to, you know, to the board, to the rest of the world. And I think I listened to too many people because I didn't have confidence as a leader. Mm -hmm. And my instinct would say, no, don't do that. But I always thought, oh, they're smarter than me. They're older than me. They're more experienced. But like, you know, as I said earlier, you can only change what you know. I knew that space and I had the instinct, but I did not listen to it. And anytime that I, that I did that, it didn't go well. Right. And I think, you know, that's another piece. I mean, all these pieces, right. I mean, fail, but, but it really is true. I mean, you've got, you have to. And I think, um, once women do that, I mean, we have different ideas and I think we're often told, well, that's never been done before. You can't do that. It's not done that way. And it's like, that's what we need right now to get us, you know, not back on track, as we said, but to build a different world. Wow. Her goal is so audacious. Justine, what drew you to Elise and Vital Voices to begin with? Uh, Well, I met Elise a year and a half ago. And the way that she talks about women and leadership and and the way that she has a very you know, adamant perspective that women lead very differently to men and that the world needs this kind of leadership really sort of spoke to me personally as somebody who's in an industry with not a lot of women leaders in the job that I do. And um, it just really resonated with me and it made me feel, you know, kind of empowered um, that in my own type, not my own leadership, you know. Uh, so I think that was, I was just really fascinated by her perspective on women's leadership and I was really drawn and, you know, when we when the conversations that we had felt very 
we both agreed we felt like kindred spirits. Uh, so it was a really natural conversation and, um, yeah, it was a very personal thing that drew me to it. It really comes out in the conversation between you. So tell us how our listeners can learn more about Elise. Uh, well, vitalvoices.org has everything you want to know about them and their mission and a lot about Elise. If you go to YouTube, you can search for Vital Voices and Amanda Gorman and you can find the video that's called Join the Movement and you can see what we did with them earlier this year and check out their Vital Voices podcast, which is on Spotify. Thanks, Justine. It's great resources for female leadership around the world. Uh, so that does it for this week. The podcast team and I would like to thank Lizzie Kirschenbaum, Leslie Smith, and Sophie Ibrahim. If you'd like to hear more creators, founders, and inventors discuss how they thought up their ideas, lead their teams, or change the world, follow this feed wherever you listen to podcasts and check out past episodes. Reach out to us with questions and comments on Gray's social channels or our email address, podcasts at gray.com. And lastly, tell someone about our show. It helps us share these ideas with the world. Thanks for listening to Gray Matter. Gray Matter is hosted by John Petrullis, produced by Danielle Hunt and senior producer Joey Scarillo, mixed by Guy Rosemarin at Gramercy Park Studios with post-production support from Ned Martin and Robin Frank. Additional support by John Jenkinson, Christina Hyde, Gigi Vera, Gabby Piatek, Erica Vander, and Ryan Cunningham. Gray is a global creative agency whose mission is putting famously effective ideas into the world. Check out more at gray.com.